You're listening to The Deadly Dose, hosted by Harini Bot and Megan Gesner. Hey, Poison Pals. Welcome back to another Rewind episode. This is my episode. I don't even remember which episode number this is. It might have been like 10 or 12, but Mm. it was the very first story that I did that had ties back to my mother country of India. This story is mired in so much speculation, and normally that would not be great subject matter for a science forward podcast, but there is heavy speculation that Lal Bahadur Shastri, former prime minister of India, was poisoned as the cause of his untimely death. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I wanted to tell this story, even though it's, of course, n- not solved and there's heavy speculation, still not solved, actually, mm-hmm. it's a very well-known and powerful story for people in India. I mean, it's akin to JFK getting assassinated, your president being assassinated, right, for the Indian people. And there's so much shrouded in mystery. There's so much that is hidden. There are no real updates, I will say, but Indian historian Anujdar, he wrote a book recently called Your Prime Minister is Dead. Mm. in which he talks about the links that he went through to figure out what happened to the prime minister, to Prime Minister Shastri, once and for all. If Once you hear this story, I will talk about all the different possible theories. And basically, there's fingers pointing in every direction in this episode. But interestingly, Anujdar dismisses all those fingers that point outwards and turns the finger back at India mm. itself. And now I'll talk a little bit about this. This will all be in the episode, but there are certain aspects that are a little bit concerning. For example, there were no phones in his room when he went to bed. He was in Tashkent for the Tashkent uh, treaty that was going on, and the room that he was staying at had no phones. Hmm. Why is that? He's a prime minister. He should definitely have a phone at his bedside in case Mm -hmm. something like that happens, like he's dying. So that was a really interesting fact that came out from this whole story. Another thing was, which I talk about in the episode is there were weird blue, like black and blue marks, almost like bruising underneath the skin. Mm. And there was no explanation as to what that was. And then thirdly, on the back of his head, there was a hole of some kind, like, like almost like an incision. There's blood basically Mm. coming from Mm. the back of his, the nape of his neck. We have some answers to that third part, which is what's new in this episode. So Anujdar had done a lot of research, as I said, and this is his answer for that from what he found. Essentially, the night that everything happens, Shastri dies. He is quoted as having died of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Do we know if that's the case? Probably not. It's it's definitely not a heart attack. But what it is, we don't exactly know. What we do know is he was in the hands of Soviet Russia. They were basically hosting him in Tashkent. Mm -hmm. And the Soviet Russians, they come into the room and they're freaking out because they're like, oh my God, like someone's prime minister just died in our midst. What Mm -hmm. do we do? Mm -hmm. And the Indian government was very strict. Do not touch him. Do not engage in a postmortem. We want to have the postmortem done in India. Mm. But 
at the same time, the Russians did not want to just sit by idly and do nothing. They're like, if this is a situation like a poisoning, for example, it's possible that by the time they get him to India, this poison or whatever it is could be out of his system. Hmm. So they wanted to provide some sort of data for the Indian government in case that is the situation. Mm -hmm. So what they ended up doing, and Anusdar had talked to basically... I don't know what the correct term is. I think it's either like a pathologist or the coroner, whoever would do a postmortem, that kind of doctor. Mm -hmm. So he talked to a doctor who engages in these. And he said, there's two different ways that you can take samples from a body for a toxicology report. He said, one way is by getting fluids from, from the eye, um, just from like the, the corner of your eye. The other way, which is not as frequently done, but is a way, is tapping into the back of the neck, basically mm -hmm. the, the like a spinal tap, mm. and getting the fluids, the CSF fluid from there. So that doctor believes that that's what the Russian government was trying to do. They mm. wanted it to be as, as less invasive, as minimally invasive as possible, where it's nothing is shown like on the front of his body. So they wanted to just do like a small incision, a small extraction of fluid from his spinal cord. And that way they could have that data to see, was he poisoned? Let's do a toxicology report. Right. That information has, is what has come out now. Interesting. So I guess the question would be, why is it coming out now? If this is what happened, who did the Russians tell on the Indian side? Or did they just keep mum and would have said something if yeah. poison was detected? You know what I'm saying? Like Right. Yeah. Right. And and this is where things get really strange because to, to Anujdar's point, he feels India is hiding something. What are they hiding? Because mm. to this day, the Indian government refuses to release Shastri's postmortem, stating that, quote, releasing these documents would disrupt international relations. Mm. That is weird. That yeah. is so like, what in the heck does that mean? That to me, though, points a finger more outside than mm. inside. To me, like if it's going to disrupt international relations, that means someone else may have done this to Shastri rather than India itself, I think. Right. But I don't know. Who who really knows? But Anujdar has went to the government itself, Indian government itself, and asked him, please release the postmortem. India deserves to know. His family deserves to know. It's been years. It's been yeah. years. This happened in the 60s, yeah. right? So it, enough time has passed, which is what we talk about a lot, Megan, is for some of these stories that are, are older, it's like how much time needs to pass for this information to be okay to be released? Right. Um, At what point right. does a conspiracy eventually get aired out? Like if it's a yeah. – plausible conspiracy which you know at what point right. does, can can the truth come out yeah. right because i can only imagine having an answer even if it's not the answer you want to hear is better than no answer so mm -hmm. I, I can't even imagine what shastri's family is going through has been going through all these years of just not knowing and right. just the, the person who was in a fit bill of health all of a sudden dies it clearly something was amiss right so right yep that that is all I have for you in terms of an update. Uh, we'll get into the episode because this is a wild one. So mm -hmm. hope you guys enjoy it. Before we get into the rest of the episode, if you've been enjoying our content so far, please go rate and review us wherever you might be listening from, or don't. Just keep on hanging with us. All right, on to the rest of the episode. All right, hello, poison pals. Welcome back. The story I'm going to do this week had me thinking a lot about my family. And last week or the weekend before, whatever, whatever that was, I was with my brother and Sweta, and my brother brought up this whole story that I told you just like 
stacked in the back of my brain, but totally forgot about until he brought it up. Again. And I just mm-hmm. laughed as hard as I did when I first heard it. <laughs> and we were talking about Eli because Eli is my brother and Swetha's dog, who is also my um, dog as well. <laughs> and they were talking about how they always wanted a dog. And as soon as they got their new home, they're like, okay, this is it. This is our opportunity. And so they were trying to apply for all these adoption sites. And it was really difficult because obviously COVID, a lot of people adopted dogs. Mm-hmm. So they were getting stuff like crazy. And at first, when my brother and Swetha told my parents that they're going to adopt a dog, mm-hmm they got real mad mm. because they're like, oh, you guys just bought a brand new house. Like you guys have carpet, like, yeah. you know, like just like going down the rabbit hole of, and then my brother just like heavily eye rolled at all yeah. of that. And we're just like, well, we're going to do it anyways. Yeah. <laughs> I love that parents will continue to be parents till the end of time. Oh. You know, like, oh, like dude, uh, yes. for context, <laughs> as you can discern from what Harini just said, her brother <laughs> and his wife have a home. Yeah, it is to me, I'm like, of course they should. If they want to get a dog, they get a dog. But parents, your parents, Harini. Yeah, yeah. It just it's just in their blood. They got to be like, oh, like it's too much responsibility. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, they were just shitting on it all day. But and then <laughs> they were having some trouble finding a dog. They just kept getting rejected, rejected, rejected from all these applications. And then my mom started to help. Tides have turned. She sends my brother this link from Craigslist, which is like always like. Mm-hmm. Like you, you never want to buy a dog off Craigslist, but she was like, it's a golden retriever mm-hmm. for a hundred bucks. And then my brother clicks the link. It's a statue. Oh. I was like, Mom, <laughs> it's your eyesight that bad. <laughs> oh, so she really didn't know. Did she not click on the link? She did. That's why I'm like, oh my God. Is she, okay, is, but she this being, is, is she being cheeky? Is she like, Here. she is not. <laughs> that is not. My mom is just like that. But anyway, that was my story because my story has a lot to do with my heritage. Let's just put it oh, that way. I'm excited. Let's just get into it, Megan. Yes. Take it away. All right, Harini. It is time for you to pick your poison. Okay, okay. All right. Okay. So this story has been in an area that I've been meaning to do for a long, long time. And honestly, I'm a little bit embarrassed that it's taken me this long to actually get around to doing it. It wasn't because I didn't want to. It's because mm-hmm. I was waiting to find the right story. I wanted to have meaningful impact and also have some sort of historical context to it. So I finally found my story. So this is going to be my version of the OG Malay episode one that Megan did because today's story is all about India. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm stoked. Stoked for this. Yes. Specifically India in the 1960s. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. I want to preface this by saying, although I am Indian, I don't know Indian history that well. Like, I'm not super familiar with it. I I know, like, the general of what happened. Just, like, I honestly don't know much about U.S. history, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I was excited to do the story because it allowed me to learn more about what was going on in India at this time very properly. So in order to tell the story, I need to set up the historical and political background of India at Mm -hmm. that time. So let's do that right now. So as most people might know, India was colonized by the British and was ruled by them for over almost 300 years Mm -hmm. until we finally gained independence on August 15th, 1947. 
And just a side note, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the name India itself is also a very, it's a British term. It's mm. what British people named India or the land that is India. Mm-hmm. India was never called India ever mm. by the Indian people. They called it Bharat. Mm. Just a quick side story. My dad's dad, so my grandfather, who was very, very close to, he was born, I think, like in 1917, 1920, like in in that time period. He essentially grew up under British rule and also saw independence happen in India. And whenever we would go visit him and he would talk about India, he would never say India. He would always say Bharat. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of people are very still like passionately loyal to the pre-colonization of India Mm -hmm. in that term. Anyways, that's a long time to be ruled by someone. And the people of India really just had enough. So World War II just ended in 1945. And India supplied more than 2 million people to the war effort Mm -hmm. for World War II and focused their entire economy towards the war. But this was sort of their last straw. Honestly, they were tired of fighting and tired of being ruled over. They wanted to just be their own country finally. Mm -hmm. And honestly, on the flip side, Britain didn't have a lot of time or money as well after the war. They were completely ravished by the war effort as well. And to continue ruling and spending money over in India, which was such a huge country, that was also part of their reason where they agreed to this independence. Mm -hmm. So when people think of India's independence, they often think about Gandhi because he always promoted a peaceful removal of British rule of India so that India could be a whole secular country again. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, he was overshadowed by some stronger political factions that wanted to make sure the hand over of power to India was done correctly. And it was kind of interesting because India was in talks with the British rule to basically hand over power and just have the British leave India once and forever. Mm -hmm. So when you think about something like that, there's a huge transition of power and India suddenly is their own country, right? And they have to basically create a whole new government under this new country. So before that was all happening, these two people sort of bubbled up to the surface of these two political parties kind of in preparation for what was to come next. So there were two different factions that came out of this. There was Jawaharlal Nehru, who was the leader of the Congress, a Hindu-dominated but secular political party, and then Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who represented the Muslim Indians. Mm -hmm. Nehru really wanted to have a united India that was secular. Although he was Hindu, he wanted India as a complete country. But then Jinnah was concerned because India was majority Hindu. And there, even though there was a lot of Muslim Indians in India, he was worried that they would be overshadowed. Mm-hmm. And essentially, he wanted some safeguards for the Muslim Indian population and even proposed a Muslim homeland separate to India. What came next was really done in complete haste. The British sent a lawyer. He was just some lawyer guy named Radcliffe to divide India up geographically by religion. Mm. And this guy never flew west past of Paris. This was his first time in India. And the British government gave him 36 days to create two countries that would still be in place to this day. Mm. So... Not surprisingly, he decided to arbitrarily divide India into two separate countries, Mm. India for the Hindus and Pakistan for Muslims. Mm. The issue is Muslims lived all over India as well as Hindus. Like It's not like they lived in one certain part of the country always and forever. And that's why he was so easily able to divide it up. Like that's that just doesn't exist. Right. Mm. It was just this metaphorical 
line in the sand that the British had drawn, what used to be the state of Punjab mm. now was divided in half, with some going to half going to India and half contributing to what is now Pakistan. And what came after was one of the world's largest human migrations in history to date. 15 million people were just uprooted from their homes as Muslims migrated across the border to Pakistan and Hindus migrated across the other border to India. Mm. Just think, you and your family have been living in the same place for decades. You have your friends, your family, your school, your work, your livelihood, and now you have to suddenly pick up and leave all that behind to go to your home country, in quotation marks, Mm -hmm. and start anew. Just because someone says, oh, now that's your home and you need to leave. Mm. And they didn't give them very long to do that. It was only like two or three weeks or a really short time frame to just pick up all their shit and go. Mm-hmm. More than one to two million people died during this migration due to starvation, disease, and a lot of violence that was religiously motivated. Mm. The reason religion became such a big issue in India was because of British rule, they use a very well-known tactic called divide and rule, where they continuously called attention to and created entities for Muslims separate to Hindus, so that by the time the British rule ended, the people of India were more focused on religion mm. than language or ethnicity, and they fell down this rabbit hole of, you are different to me, which is exactly what the British wanted. They wanted them to just kind of fight amongst themselves and just not mm. succeed as a country post-British Raj Mm-hmm. But that isn't to say that many, many Hindus and Muslims in India coexisted harmoniously. It's just that this was kind of brewing for some time in the background. And the India partition was definitely, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. So after all those years, India finally gains independence. But it is a little bit bittersweet because of all this turmoil and hatred that came out of it. Mm-hmm. India ends up adopting a democratic government and Nehru becomes the first prime minister of India. He governs as prime minister until his death in 1964. And then his successor, Lal Bahadur Shastri, who's the second prime minister of India, is going to be our main character for today's story. My mind just goes like, that's colonialism for you. <laughs> yeah, I genuinely don't mean that like as blase as I just yeah. said it, but like. <laughs> My mind goes to the whole continent of Africa and Mm -hmm. how one whole freaking continent. In some ways, you could argue that India and Pakistan, India is called a subcontinent for a reason. It's Mm -hmm. massive. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where like colonial power did it to such massive land masses, Mm -hmm. Africa as a continent, Mm -hmm. India, which is a subcontinent. Mm -hmm. There's just so much that comes out of what happens when colonialism ends. You know what I mean? I'm stating the obvious. It's really sad. And it's one of those things where it's like, sometimes I don't like to say the words because I'm like, it's already been done, you know, Mm -hmm. and all these cracks and problems that have just ruminated in these countries that were under colonial rule for so long. And then it just disappeared without any kind of like structural support being there for them to be independent and strong yeah i mean obviously this is not no it is, it is part of the story because i it was really it's really important to set up why there is such strife between muslims and indians specifically pakistan and india it's really because of colonialism and how they just left a really 
dirty mess behind. And and it's kind of crazy because so much violence Mm -hmm. was started because of this partition. And there was maybe five casualties on the British side when they left Mm. because there was this peaceful transition because no one wanted to, I I don't know, like rock the boat with Britain. Mm. They were just happy to have them leave. Yeah. And there obviously are some dissenter, some more like extremists, and there was about five to seven casualties, but that's it. Mm. But then amongst ourselves as a country, we finally have our country, right? And then all this violence is incited. And it's just so sad, you know, that we like let colonialism do this to us. And it still exists to this day, you know, all the way down to our cricket teams, you know, our matches, Mm -hmm. such an intense Mm -hmm. feeling of rivalry whenever we play Pakistan. Anyways, so this is all to set up what's going to happen next. So Shastri is the second prime minister of India after Nehru passes away. And he was very much influenced by Gandhi. In fact, if you look at him, they look kind of similar. He's this short, skinny man who just looks very peaceful and quiet. He shares a birthday with Gandhi. And once India gained independence, he joined the Indian government and was a key cabinet member of Nehru. Hmm. So pretty much right after he became prime minister, India and Pakistan went to war in 1965 called the Indo-Pakistan War. Hmm. And it all started because Pakistan tried to infiltrate and force themselves into Jammu Kashmir, which is a territory that is partly owned by India, partly owned by Pakistan, and even partly owned by China. It is such a hot mess that, again, colonialism just left behind. They're like, hey, you can have a little bit of this, you can have a little bit of this, and here China takes some of that too. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this was all part of India. And now it's just like, to this day, India and Pakistan still play tug of war with this particular territory. Mm -hmm. It is really, really bad. So it's like a very sensitive spot. So whenever anyone goes in there, they're like, hey, 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 you can't do that. And then they kind of go to war over it. Like they've already gone to war three times over this particular area. Mm. So India responded by launching a full war attack against Pakistan and thus began this 17-day war. And this was the largest involvement of heavy artillery and war tanks seen since World War II. Mm. Eventually, there was a ceasefire. And this was all precipitated by the UN because they were kind of like, hey, guys, you you can't just go to war like this. Like, we need to stop. And although both sides agreed to call it quits, India definitely had the upper hand as the war was tilting in India's favor by the time the ceasefire had stopped. Pakistan was running out of resources and food and things like that. So things weren't looking great for them. And it was kind of clear to everybody like internationally that India, you know, had the upper hand. Mm-hmm. At this time, the greater picture in the world was that the Cold War was happening and Soviet Russia was allied with India while Pakistan had a little more ties to the United States. Mm. And this was something interesting. I actually asked Dave and my dad about this. And I was surprised to know that India had strong ties to Soviet Russia, Mm -hmm. that they were allies. And it was kind of one of those things where the United States allied with the British. And since getting independence for Britain, Mm -hmm. there was kind of like a rift where India and Britain were no longer allied, of course, because they were under rule for them for so long. So naturally, there was that kind of divide there. Mm -hmm. And as part of the efforts to prevent further war and show their support as an ally, the Soviet Union Premier Alexei Koskian invited the Pakistani President Ayub Khan and Indian Prime Minister Shastri to hold ceasefire negotiations in Tashkent, which is now Uzbekistan. Mm. So Khan and Shastri come to an agreement in, in Tashkent and signed the Tashkent Declaration on January 10th, 1966. 
One day later, after signing this peace treaty, Lal Bahadur Shastri will die suspiciously of a heart attack. Mm. So let's dig into that night's events after Shastri signed the peace treaty. So Shastri signs this peace treaty at 4 p.m. on January 10th. After signing, he goes back to this villa that was provided to him by his Russian hosts. Later that evening, Shastri has dinner made for him by this man named John Muhammad, the personal cook of the Indian ambassador to Moscow. And the rest of the servers slash butlers in the villa were also Russian. And at 11.30 p.m., Shastri asked for a glass of milk to be brought to him, which is such an Indian thing to do slash possibly Asian. I have never understood my friends who don't drink milk, like just Mm. on its own. I, uh, (laughs) you're like, I don't relate. No, no, no. I don't relate in a sense that I've never tied it to specifically like Asian practices or anything. Mm -hmm. I did drink milk on its own for a Mm -hmm. long time growing up. I didn't realize that that was abnormal. Right. But my mom, coming from like a Malay mm-hmm. experience, mm-hmm. my mom never stated, oh, yeah, Malays, we love to drink milk. <laughs> no, like that was never a conversation. I think I just liked to drink milk on mm. its own because I just did. <laughs> maybe that's it too. I don't know. Maybe it's just my family because I remember every night growing up, my mom would give me a glass of warm milk and I couldn't like leave the table until <laughs> I finished it. That's hilarious. I honestly so. don't think. Well, this is why it's an interesting question for you. Like you're commenting on like, oh, drinking milk might be an Indian thing. But the reason why I suspect for you know, speaking personally, why it might not be a Malay thing mm-hmm. is because Southeast Asian country, it's close to the equator, perhaps even in line with the equator. So it's hot as fuck, super mm-hmm. humid in that country. And refrigeration is very expensive. And people honestly just don't buy milk as much depending on your economic status because milk goes rancid yeah. so quickly yeah. if you don't have the means to refrigerate it. So a lot of people don't actually just drink milk whole, yeah. like as a full glass because it's also expensive. So I don't know if yeah. that's the same for that's true. parts of India. That's a good point. I know my dad grew up drinking lots of milk, but the thing is there's so many, ca- like they have fresh milk. Like they'll literally yeah. have cows and they'll milk that shit and have it straight from the cow. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say drink straight from the teat. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's literally what they did. So he asked for a glass of milk to be brought to him, which was brought to him by the same cook. So John Muhammad gave him his nightcap of warm milk. I know. All the personal <laughs> all the personal <laughs> staff said that at this time when they took leave of Shastri, he was just fine. But at around 1.25 a.m., Shastri wakes up and is intensely coughing. Mm. The room he was in had no phone or intercom. Essentially, there's no way of him communicating to anybody. So he has to get up and walk out to another room to find a staff member to inform them to call his personal doctor. By the time his doctor arrived, Shastri was already dying and the symptoms pointed towards a heart attack. By the time his doctor was able to even get him more professional help, like get him to a hospital or something like that, Shastri took Lord Ram's name, which is just God's name, and he was gone. Mm. Okay, so that is that. It's a very short time period of what happened because he comes to Tashkent, signs the treaty. Literally eight hours later, he's dead. Mm. How old was he at the time? Ooh, good question. Let me look that up really quick. And I was thinking about it. He's in Russia or like Soviet Union territory. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm like, if it was cold, I get why he would ask for warm milk before Aww. bed. Yes, it is true. It's true. <laughs> Even though that, that is his undoing. <laughs> that was his undoing. Uh, he was 61 years old. Okay. And I want to note, he had no health conditions. Yeah. Like he didn't take any medications. He didn't have a heart condition. He had no other diseases. He was a very yeah. healthy man. It's because he's drinking milk before bed all the time. That is that is why. That is why. <laughs> Although this might be a PSA to not drink milk, I guess. But I want to make it very clear that Shasui's cause of death is unsolved to this day. Oh, okay. Yes. Mm. However, however, most people who know the story mm. will say, because the theory remains, that he was poisoned. Okay. Like, very heavily so. People think he was poisoned. Yeah. So what I'm going to tell you next are the events following his death that made everyone think he was poisoned. But I will let you, Poison Pals, decide that for yourself. I'm kind of going out on a limb here because I'll be very honest. Mm-hmm. It's not confirmed that he was poisoned. Yeah. And it's not confirmed if he even was poisoned, what with. Mm, okay. But we'll cross that bridge when it comes. Okay, okay. So Shastri gets sick and dies. At around 4 a.m. that same night, Ahmed Sadarov, who is one of the Russian butlers for Shastri, was suddenly awoken mm. by an officer in the KGB and in Sadarov's own words, quote, the KGB officer said they suspected the Indian prime minister had been poisoned, unquote. Who discovered Shastri dead? The whole household, basically. Like, Shastri himself awoke a servant in a nearby room and called out for help. I see. And asked for his doctor. The doctor came. So kind of the whole house was aware of what was happening and seeing things in real time. And then he passed He passed away before their eyes, gotcha. basically. Gotcha. Again, so Sadarov gets awoken by this KGB officer. And the KGB officer says they suspected the Indian prime minister had been poisoned. Mm. So Sadarov gets handcuffed and along with three other of the butlers was rounded off to an offsite location 30 kilometers away. And the Russian butlers were interrogated in some dungeon. Mm -hmm. And after some time, Shastri's cook, John Muhammad, was brought in. Mm. And in Sadarov's words again, he says, we thought it must have been that man who poisoned Shastri. Mm. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, please do. There's a lot of information in between. And I'm like, did she say that the cook made him the milk? Or did she say he brought it to him? Like, it's one of those, like, in between. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. John Muhammad, the cook, brought the milk. Okay. And the games. (laughs) (laughs) The poison games. You know, he started his own live action clue. No, oh my God. (laughs) Oh, so dark. Okay. All of India is going to come for me right now. Um, So sort of simultaneously, all of India is alerted to their prime minister's untimely death. And Shastri's body is immediately brought back to Delhi. At this point, no one in India had a clue that the KGB was suspecting it was poison. Hmm. But when people close to Shastri, including his family, see that his skin is literally blue Mm -hmm. and he had these weird white splotches on his face as well as he had cuts on his neck and stomach. Shastri's mother screams that someone has poisoned her son. She's very clear on that. And Mm -hmm. you don't mess with an Indian mother. What she says goes. (laughs) So clearly they see Shastri and they're like, something's not right. So they ask for a postmortem. The family asks for a postmortem, but no postmortem is carried out. Mm. Actually, it is refused. They refuse to carry out postmortem. Who 
did they request for the postmortem? Did they request the Soviet government or the Indian? They asked the Indian government to do it. Hmm. And the family demanded for an RTI. This kept popping up in my research and I was like, I don't know hmm. what that is. And it means right to information, which is something I think every government kind of has something similar. But in India, it's essentially you can pull any government official documents and it can be released hmm. to the public if you you just have to ask yeah. for it, essentially. So the family demanded for an RTI on any files of intelligence related to Shastri's death. But the prime minister at the time, his name is Nanda, he refused citing that releasing this information would upset the peace of India. Hmm. But what's weirder is that later on, Nanda feigned that he was ever asked to release any information at all on Shastri by the family. He just was like, oh, they never asked me that. Like, hmm. blah, 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 blah. So it's like this weird, like, why why lie about something like that? I just don't understand, right? Yeah. The family was also upset because Shastri's usual cook, his name's Ram Nath, was switched out for this John Muhammad guy. And that was something that they were really upset about because they essentially, like everyone else in the, in the world, linked Shastri's untimely death with the milk that he was given and mm. probably thought like that was the agent of evil for putting the poison and eventually killed him. So they were kind of like, if he had his normal cook, like this would never have happened. Like, why mm. did you guys insist that he have this Russian ambassador cook, you know, mm. cook for him that night? So there's just like a lot of things that just didn't add up. It is hard to say who would be responsible or who would want Shastri dead, but there are some wild theories out there. I had to do a little bit of digging because I was like, okay, kind of similar to what you went through for the OG Malay episode. You're like, okay, what was the political climate at the time? Like, Who was on whose side? And I was curious about this whole Tashkent Treaty. Mm -hmm. Did the people of India want this treaty to be signed? Like, was there any love lost there mm -hmm. and the people of india actually didn't want the peace treaty to be signed because the wording in the treaty didn't include a no war pact between india and pakistan meaning that they could not enter um they could not have wars again there mm -hmm. which is kind of the whole point is they all went to war over this territory so the whole peace treaty should say you can't engage in war tactics again in this territory which wasn't in there for whatever reason hmm. and they didn't denounce any further guerrilla warfare in kashmir which was what began the war in the first place is that Pakistan invaded with military weapons, mm, mm. attempting to further invade India. So it was kind of one of those things where they're like, Shastri, like, why did you sign something that isn't beneficial to us in any way? Mm. You know, so did extremists in India plot to kill their own prime minister? Like, I have no idea. It doesn't seem likely to me just because they were, you know, the, the general public was not into this whole treaty. Mm. Another theory, which I feel is sort of a flimsy theory, but possible, is that the CIA killed Shastri. Mm. Again, we're just turning into a conspiracy theory podcast, yeah. but this is the information that popped up. So I just want to state it because you got to remember that this is during the Cold War era and mm. India was more allied with Russia and U USA was more allied with Pakistan. And the background behind all of this during the Cold War is that India refused to back down on its nuclear weapons. So this all made India appear to be more of a threat to the United States. And Prime Minister Shastri being in Russian territory made it a prime opportunity to poison him to almost make it look like Russia did it mm. in a way. That was their MO. And it still is their MO, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So it kind of 
aligned for them if the CIA did do that. And it wasn't beyond the CIA at the time to poison people. They were also dabbling that, as we have seen with MK Ultra. Mm-hmm. They didn't just do, use LSD. They had over 300, 400 projects that they were working on simultaneously through MK Ultra, not just LSD. So mm. they were no stranger to using poison on enemies. So it is possible. And it could be more of a reason why the Russian KGB was so spooked at the time and why they had awoken up and was trying to interrogate those Russian butlers almost immediately because they're like, did you do this? Almost in my eyes, it looks like they're trying to clear their name and trying to seek out the mole before it gets put on them type of thing. Yeah. But this is all conjecture. I honestly have no idea. Yeah. If that's, you know, the theory, which I just from hearing it, I feel like there's some holes in it. Like it just, I guess the the follow up question to that theory would be, okay, well, what would the next prime minister benefit from that? What what does the next prime minister's term essentially mm-hmm. produce that would benefit the United States then? You know what I mean? Like, because yeah. like what would come from that if ultimately after Shastri is poisoned and dies and the, is it Nandi? The next one is... Nanda was actually just in, was just prime minister, kind of like an interim prime minister. The next person who came shortly after all of this, after Nanda, Indra Gandhi was the next person. And that became a whole line of the Gandhis being prime minister. And she was very, very powerful. But was her affiliation still with Soviet Russia? I'm like hearing this theory about, okay, the CIA came into Russia and like poisoned Shastri to like break ties with the USSR and India. But for that to be valid, I would need to see aftermath proof. Did this work out in a way that would benefit the U.S. during the Cold War? And so that's what I don't know. All theories are not very smoothed out. So, oh, I, I agree. How's the hardest thing? Do I do the story? Do I not do the story? Because the information is very well hidden. Mm. And I don't know why it is so well hidden, you know. But yeah, another piece of evidence that has come to light more recently was an article in the Hindustan Times where Anil Shastri, which is the son of mm-hmm. Lal Bahadur Shastri, and he writes to the current prime minister of India, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, after a parliament session for declassifying documents, including the Raj Narain Committee Report of 1977, which relates to the death of his father in Tashkent in 1966. According to Anil, he says that his mother always said that his father's death was a pre-planned political murder. Because as I said, despite repeated requests by the family members, no postmortem examination was conducted. Anil said in his previous meeting with the former Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, Manmohan Singh had politely dissuaded him from making attempts to get the documents pertaining to the former PM's death as it could affect relations with foreign countries. Oh, okay. So that in itself leads me to believe that it is not India, perhaps, that is actually that is actually a different country that was involved. And there's only so many players that it could be. Like we said, it could be Pakistan. Although I do feel like that is unlikely, given that they were there for the Tashkent Treaty. The most likely is the Soviet Union. If it was the CIA, like they said, I think that is less likely just because India and the United States were not allies at that time and would not be allies for some time. But the only people they were allied with is Soviet Russia. So that is looking more like a possibility. But again, 
Who knows? Yeah. On the other hand, Anil Shastri does say that apart from suspecting a foreign hand in this business, the role of some Indian bureaucrats and businessmen can also not be ruled out as his father had come across a major scam in the shipping sector against which he was about to take action after his return to India from Tashkent. Mm. So those timeline events definitely match up. So not necessarily people in the Indian government, but people in business that would be heavily affected if Shastri had taken action against them. I see. Clearly, no one wants this information to really get out to the public, and I'm not really sure why. It's not really clear, and that's just that's just where it is, right? I definitely do feel like he was poisoned, but I just like don't know by who. The timeline just is so quick, and I do think the biggest red flags to me is that they refuse a postmortem. Secondly, they refuse the right to information for whatever reason. So anyways, like I said, this is still an unsolved mystery and the Indian government has not disclosed or not confirmed that this was in fact a poisoning. But it's one of those things where most people believe he was poisoned based on the timing of events and what I described above. Mm -hmm. I had to do some heavy digging because technically there is no poison in question because they have not confirmed that this is a poisoning. But when I did more heavy digging into the research, the name or the poison that pops up as a potential poison that he could have been killed with is a poison that can often present like a heart attack. Mm. And it goes by a few names. So now we're going into the toxicology. So the story part is Mm. over. This poison goes by a few names, namely Wolfsbane, Mm. Monkshood, Devil's Helmet, Queen of Poisons. But most people know it as Aconite. Damn. I don't know Aconite at all. Uh Uh-huh. All those names are badass. I know, right? <laughs> they are. Yeah, but I know zero about Aconite. I, this is the first time I've ever heard about oh, really? Aconite. Have you heard of those other names? I've heard Wolfsbane, okay. but okay. within the context of like playing Diablo or, <laughs> you know, like oh, uh, Harry Potter sword or something. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious. Tell me more. Yeah. I was actually kind of excited when I saw this pop up as a potential poison because I was like, oh, I've heard of this poison and I've always wanted to do a story on it. But I was like, I don't know like what good story is going to come out of this. So mm-hmm. this was kind of a happy accident. Okay. <laughs> so Aconite is part of a genus of over 250 species of flowering plants. So it is a flower. It's actually a very beautiful flower. And it is native to the northern hemispheres and tends to grow in well-drained soil of meadows. Hmm. They are considered to be the most poisonous <laughs> plant and need to be handled carefully. The name aconite is derived from the Greek word akon, I think. It's literally spelled like akon, like A-K-O-N, but I don't think it's akon. Convict. Music. <laughs> I see you want. Alrighty. Okay. Yes. So... Akon, which means dart or javelin, from when they would dip the arrows in the aconite flowers, kill wolves, which is also why it's called wolfsbane. Huh. Huh, indeed. Okay. I'm I'm looking at the flower and I'm also just absorbing everything you're saying. And now I understand why wolfsbane was used in the game Diablo, because I'm pretty sure it's a melee attack used with arrows. Oh, oh that's very cool. I could just be pulling that from my butt. Actually, but- <laughs> 
I was going to say, Megan, now that you're looking at the plant, could you please help describe what it looks like and also why you think it may be called the devil's helmet? Yeah. Okay. Well, actually, the name that triggered is Monk's Hood. That makes sense to me. Monk's Hood as one of the names. I know it's one you listed, but it's a cluster of flowers. I'm seeing a lot of blue and kind of violet textures. They almost look like, what are they called? Um, Fox... Foxglove. They, they look like foxglove, right? Yeah, they do. They're like bell-shaped. It kind of look, yeah. literally looks like a helmet or like a hood. Yeah, it's like, imagine foxglove, but foxglove's very like pert aconite. In some ways, that's the same, but it, it's almost a little bit more arched, so it does look like a hood. Like, there's a hood coming over the opening of these blossoms. But like if you can picture foxglove, it looks like that kind of clustered together, almost a spire up a stalk. Mm-hmm. Um, does it look like a devil's helmet? I guess it looks like a helmet. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's a really beautiful plant. Like I said, it has this deep purple, almost like twilight, beautiful twilight color and is hooded under the petals. <laughs> the entire plant is poisonous, but the roots and the tubers are the parts that are super deadly. However, you can remove most, if not all, the toxins by boiling it in high heat water, which is often what people do in Asian countries because they will use aconite as an herbal medicine. Mm. I was trying to look into like what they use it for and nothing was really popping up. It just said that they use it for herbal medicine. So I don't know how often it's still used today mm-hmm. because that shit is poison. And yeah. let me tell you how. Okay. It causes cardiotoxicity and neurotoxicity by acting on your voltage-gated sodium channels that are specifically on the myocardium, which is basically your heart muscle, mm-hmm. your nerves, and just your, your regular muscles. Mm-hmm. So Aconite binds to aconitine mm. and mesoconitine, and they bind with high affinity to the open state of your sodium channels to cause this persistent activation of those channels. Mm. And this means that your heart can't repolarize, i.e., it can't go back to a resting state. Mm. And this essentially leads to the heart attack. Wow. Wait, so is that in some ways, like the fact that your heart can't go back to resting state, is that kind of the same conceptually what we see with like nerve agents and stuff? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Nerve agents function in a way that's different. Right. Asphyxiation, essentially, because your lungs tighten. Mm -hmm. But it almost sounds the same about with the heart. Yes, it is like nerve agents in the sense that you're overstimulating a certain part of your channels or a certain mm. neurotransmitter in the case of nerve agents, mm. but it's just acting on a different muscle. So right. the nerve agents will act on like your diaphragm and your muscles around your lungs or in your lungs, right? Yeah. And then aconite yeah. is acting on your heart muscles, which is what's leading to this heart attack. Mm. At least that's what kills you. It does act on your motor muscles as well. Mm. And I'll get into it a little bit later. It does cause you to have issues with your motor skills, but that's not really going to kill you, right? Mm. When you attack your heart muscle, that's what kills you. Gotcha. Other symptoms or ways that aconite poisoning can present is a combination of your neuro, cardio, and GI. So you can have numbness of the face and your limbs. You have issues with your motor skills, like I was telling you, and you'll get this low blood pressure, chest pain, palpitations, the slowed heart rate, nausea, vomiting, sweating, abdominal pain, diarrhea, like a whole slew of things. But what's really key about that whole list of symptoms is that pretty much all of those symptoms are exactly what happens when you get a heart attack. Mm. So namely, you will get chest pain, 
you'll have nausea, you'll have palpitations, you'll get sweating, profuse sweating. Mm. And that's what makes this so deadly is that it's hard to differentiate between a heart attack and that you have acne poisoning. Like if you were to show up to the hospital and have these symptoms, they're going to treat you for a heart attack, which probably would be okay. But for example, if you died, they wouldn't know if you got poisoned or like murdered by somebody by aconite, right? Because they're not even thinking that, right? Yeah. So that's just something to think about, I guess. Uh (laughs) You're kind of reading my thoughts because part of me is like, we've done so many assassination stories. Yeah. And I'm like, this type of poison to me sounds more effective in a sense of like not potentially getting caught yeah. because it mimics real ailments. Right. Whereas like with nerve agents, it's very dramatic, yeah. right? Yeah. How they affect the body. And so it's like clear that, okay, something's up here. Yeah. <laughs> I am not saying that like, this is how I would poison someone, but like, yeah, yeah. Are assassins going for efficiency or are they going for discretion? Right. And in my head, I'm like, I don't know. I think discretion would be better. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Cause like, Okay, this is going to sound so bad, but like, this is why I don't think it was Russia that did this because I feel like they like to go out with a bang. They like to be like, yeah, bitch, we were here. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's true. And maybe there's a reason why certain countries, when they do enable poisoning their enemies, they make it intentionally non-discreet to indicate, don't mess with us. You can't prove it was us. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And I kind of agree with you, Megan. This is sort of a very tricky if not very clever poison because it does mimic something very real and something that people will not think twice about like oh yeah you people die of heart attacks all the time and it can be sudden it can be out of nowhere yeah let's just say you are walking in the woods and you just eat a bunch of aconite (laughs) flowers for whatever reason so what's going to happen to you so from the time to swallow aconite you can exhibit symptoms within minutes so it's Mm. it's pretty fast acting and death due to heart attack will happen within a few hours, usually three to four hours without proper medical attention, which seems to play out pretty nicely in terms of the timeline that we're aware of with Shastri. He was given the milk at 11.30 p.m. Let's say it took him like Mm -hmm. 15 minutes to slowly sip on that. He dies at 1.30 a.m. So there you go. Antidote. The best antidotes are similar to what you treat for atrial fibrillation, which is essentially a heart condition. And it's essentially when Mm. your heart is offbeat, the rhythm of your heart is abnormal. And so you are given medications called antiarrhythmics like amiodarone and flecainide that essentially get your heart back on the correct sinus rhythm because we basically have electrical Mm impulses in our heart that time the beats of our heart so that it's it pumps our blood in a regular manner, making sure that it's not mm-hmm. too fast and it's not too slow and that those impulses will increase if we're having more stress response, if we're exercising or whatever, and it'll slow it down accordingly if we need less blood pumped through our body. So it's very, very important to our body to have this in rhythm. So if you give antiarrhythmics, like I said, then this should basically mm-hmm. counteract this poison mm-hmm. so that you don't develop this heart attack. Apparently, I was kind of curious in just popular culture, like, has aconite been used? You kind of talked mm-hmm. about that. You said seen it in Diablo. I only included this because, Megan, I know you watch American Horror Story. So mm-hmm. apparently it was featured in American Horror Story Season 3, where Myrtle would use Monk's Hood to paralyze her victims to take their eyes out. I definitely saw Season 3. Okay, what season is this? Season 3 with where Myrtle, I don't even know who this is. Oh, is it Coven? It is Coven. I watched all of Coven, too. 
but to me it was so forgettable <laughs> i'm sorry if you like or if you're an american horror story junkie and you coven was your favorite but i don't know once season two passed i was like it's downhill and i do now remember what you're talking about with myrtle taking her eyes out Ooh. she literally stabs her eyes with shears oh my God. because she thinks that by doing so she'll get second vision because the first time she's blinded she gets second vision but then she, re- oh. she regains her vision back through magic or whatever and then she's like oh i need my second vision back so oh. she she takes the aconite i think and like puts it on her eyes it kind of marginally blinds herself and then she like mm-hmm. t- she literally takes like shears and <laughs> like <laughs> I don't know if you can hear the audio. I'm yeah. going to turn that up and <laughs> while I edit. Oh, God. It's just Sarah Paulson just going. Aah. Oh, it's Sarah Paulson who's playing right? Myrtle. I think. Yes. Oh, I have to check. Let me check. I totally botched all that. So. But, what, what? No. So Sarah Paulson is the one who stabs her eyes for second sight. Myrtle is like an old witch. And I honestly forget her story and what the hell she does with Aconite. But uh, okay. So ignore everything I just said. Just know that Sarah Paulson stabs her eyes with shears. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it, it like kind of went hand in hand together. Maybe Sarah Paulson should have used the Aconite and you should have written the, the next American Horror Story. There you go. <laughs> that is the conclusion we have come to. And yeah. it is the conclusion of this whole story because that is it, my friends. Okay. Well, real quick question. Yes. And that has been kind of lingering on me, but I know that his death is unsolved in terms of was it murder or did he just like die of natural causes? Mm-hmm. But you had mentioned earlier that there were lacerations on his face or body. Yeah. Yeah. And what is that about? You know what? I don't know. Like the information I did get and I didn't include it in the story because I wasn't sure like what it meant. And I only saw it in one source mm-hmm. when the family went to go see he has two sons yeah. and then the wife. So when the mom and the sons went to go see Shastri after he was dead, apparently he had bled out quite a bit. Oh. So he was bleeding and one of the sons says he even still has the pillowcase or like I think he was wearing like a, a cap or a hat because it was really cold there like when he was sleeping, like a beanie or something. And that was blood soaked as well. Huh. I didn't see that in any other other sources, but the cuts were consistent among the sources, which is why I included it. Yeah. The bleeding out part, because I wasn't sure if that was confirmed or not. But yeah, he did have cuts on his stomach and like on the back of his neck, I think. And it's not really clear where that came from or what happened because they didn't do a postmortem and they refused to release any information on what happened and what they know. So very unclear on a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. I just thought this was very interesting as a story and it is in, in India and a lot of people don't know about it even from India. So I wanted to, I don't know, just shed some light on something that happened. Like having your prime minister killed is akin to our president being assassinated. Uh-huh. So this was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, this is very interesting. Obviously, I had a lot of questions during this one. And I'm like, hey, Poison Pals, it's your chance to become internet sleuths. Right. And dig up some information. I'm very, very hung up on the idea that he had cuts on his body. Yeah. I feel very confident that he was murdered. But it's like the question of was it actually like poison? Or did someone bleed him out or something, you know, so... Yeah, another detail that I didn't really add in there, but I guess you might be interested in this, Megan. So Mm -hmm. the family is really upset because 
as you might remember, John Muhammad, the cook, he was interrogated by the KGB as potentially being the poisoner uh, in in question since he was the one that gave him the milk, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Or he could have even been in the food uh, that he had eaten earlier in the dinner. We really don't know, right? Mm. But what was really frustrating about this is the family also felt like it was John Muhammad as well. They thought he had Mm. some part to play, even though he may not have been like the mastermind. He might have been the person to carry out the task at hand. And so they wanted him to be questioned more, if not interrogated as well, or even charged. And nothing came of it. The Indian government did not see to it and just felt like this was a murder case at all, or there's no foul play. He just died of a natural heart attack. And it's a sad event, but that's but that's it. Mm-hmm. And John Muhammad was able to get a job almost immediately after this. He had no consequences. That was the key thing that in the source, the mom was so upset because he's like, this guy's just like cooking in some restaurant in India and he's totally gotten off scot-free. Mm-hmm. That was just another detail. Yeah. Super interesting. I thoroughly enjoyed the story. I know you said that you personally don't like unsolved crimes and stuff. I'm I'm the same, but I do like a story where I am left thinking of all the possibilities and yeah. a story that maybe in time the truth does reveal itself. I honestly forget what episode, but one of in one of our earlier episodes, oh no, it was MK Ultra mm-hmm. and how we talked about government cover up. Oh, right. And it was this question of at what point do cover-ups become uncovered by the people who are trying to cover it up? You know, like, at what point is enough time passed that they are comfortable to be mm-hmm. like, so, yeah, like, we did this, you know? Right, right. And that's, that's a really good point because the family in Frank Olson's case for episode, I think, seven mm-hmm. for MK Ultra, they worked tirelessly. The son worked for a decade trying to clear his dad's name and get the government to admit to this crime that they so clearly did. On the flip side, I have no idea if the Indian government had any part to play mm. in Shastri's death. I really, really don't know. All of this is so much conjecture and just probably based on other people's internet sleuthing as well. I really don't know. I think that's part of the journey, kind of like what Megan was alluding mm-hmm. to. That's part of the allure of Unsolved Mysteries is who who did it, mm-hmm. you know? And how did they do it? Like, was it the Indian government? I don't know. Was it r- the Russian government? I don't know. Was it the CIA? We don't know. Pakistan? Mm. Maybe. Hopefully sharing this story will bring this back into the foray and, and you know, your, your internet sleuths, maybe yeah. you can solve the crime. <laughs> do the work. <laughs> do the work that we cannot do. <laughs> this was my book report for the week. I loved every moment. Thank you so much, Harini. This has been an education. It, it has also because like I learned about yeah. India and its youthhood of independence. So that was interesting too. Well, I'm glad you liked it because I was really unsure about this one, but I still feel like it's something good to share. Absolutely. And um, the other thing I liked is I actually anticipate us covering a lot more poisons that come from like flowers and herbal things. And, you know, off the top of my head, I think about oleanders. Uh, Mm -hmm. I know those are toxic. And so like, there's so much we could do there. So Oh, yeah. there's, there's a whole slew of things that we can do on, on natural poisons. I think yeah. that's so interesting. But yeah, so that that is the mysterious unsolved death of Lal Bahadur Shastri, the second prime minister of India. Cool. Thank you to everybody who's already given us a rating and review. We love you guys. So please continue to show us the love. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. And don't risk it for that lactose-free milk biscuit. <laughs> All right, guys. See you later. Bye. Bye.